And uh, we're going to read from verse 12 until the last verse, 24. And today we're going to give you part number two of the message that we began last week, which is the fight and victory of the faithful. And uh, we're just grateful to the Lord for being able to gather together this morning and uh, fellowship and listen to the word of the Lord. Let me just kind of tell you guys uh, something that's important before we read. And that is, when we gather together in the message, you hear the message, the most important thing is to understand. It's really important, you know, kind of get what the preacher's trying to say. What, well, let me just say this. Yeah, it's important to get what the preacher's trying to say, but it's, a, it's more important to get the message of Scripture, right? So what's the Bible saying? That's the most important question we can ask ourselves on Sunday morning or whenever we're studying the Word of, of God, uh, what is it that God is trying to say or what is, it, what, what is He saying and then how does that apply to my life? Those are the two most important questions you can make yourself when you're listening to a sermon, when you're listening to the Word of God. So I hope that this morning as we talk about the faith and the victory of the faithful that we'll ask ourselves those two questions. So here's what the Scripture says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good, what was then that which is good make death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal souls under sin. For that which I do, I allow not, and that which I would not, that I do. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So let's read verse uh, number 25 together, all of us, because that's where the victory is described. Here's what it says. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you bless us today as we read the word of the Lord and let the power and the presence of God just fill this house as we listen to the scripture and we hear what Paul is teaching us in, this, in these verses. In the name of Jesus, Lord, thank you for the word of God that is holy. In Jesus' name. Everyone says amen. You may be seated. 
So last week, we began a message where um, we were focusing on the uh, chapter 7 of uh, verses 7 through 24 of Romans. And we got through chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, I believe, something like that. So today we're going we're gonna to continue that message. And um, I, I think it has such an important message for every one of us. I think it's really relevant. And um, if we can, uh, this morning, I'm praying to the Lord that we would, we would, um, we would learn a little bit about our struggle, uh, our, our Christian battle. Our, this is a holy battle because the things that are dependent on it, on the fight that we're fighting, the good fight of faith that, that Paul uh, talked about, um, it has to do with eternal things and whether we um, will make it to heaven and live for God and, and or, or not be successful in our Christian lives. We are not uh, Calvinist by, by doctrine. We are Arminian, at least that's our tendency. And for those of you that don't understand those terms, what I mean is that we are not um, a, a people that believe that once you're saved, that's it, it's done. You're always saved, it's done, settled. Um, we believe that a person, once he is saved, is saved, and it's difficult, but a person can lose out with God if they're careless about their spiritual walk, they're careless about their, their, um, their uh, living, the way that they live their lives. And so it's important for every one of us to be aware and to be very, very um, um, conscious of the fact that, that um, we're saved by the grace of God as we've always taught the church. That's true. And the grace of God will keep you secure in the ways of the Lord. That is true. And you can live your whole life, Christian life, with great assurance despite great failures that you are saved. But it's also true that uh, Christians that persist in sin and that continue in sin and that will not repent of their sin and uh, will not turn from their sin, but they just keep filling with sin, run the risk of losing their faith. And faith is what determines whether you're saved or not. And so it's very important. In fact, throughout the scriptures, as you read the New Testament, you'll find exhortations over and over again about, uh, you know, maintaining your faith and keeping the faith and being strong in the faith. And all of that has to do with the possibility that if we, as believers, become careless with our Christian walk and we let sin take control and reign in our Christian lives, then we run the risk of failure in the Christian life. And... Um, we all know that there are people in, in, in the Christian walk that have, that have failed in their, in their walk with God. And that's something that the scripture acknowledges. We, we understand that. And so today I'm not going to preach a message that's, that's um, although it wouldn't be very hard for me um, to teach a message that was a bit negative today, but I'm not going to do that. In fact, I've, I've realized, um, Brother Todd, that one of the struggles that I have as a preacher is to, um, 
take the scriptures. A lot of it has to do with my upbringing, right? Take the scriptures and present them the way the scriptures ought to be presented, which is in a positive light. And you should not, for all the preachers here and the preach, those that will be young, who will be preachers in the future and teachers of the word of God, we should present Christ in the most positive way we can. And the Christian faith is not a defeatist faith, it's a victorious faith. And so we ought to present the gospel precisely as that, the gospel of the victorious. And uh, so I'm going to take a scripture where Paul, in fact, when I was thinking about this, these, uh, this, uh, these two messages, I was thinking about all the negativity that is involved in the struggle of the Christian life and how he was going to present that in a way that would be encouraging to the church. I wanted to present it in a very biblical way, in a very sound biblical way, but I also wanted to present it in a way that would give you hope in your Christian walk, that regardless of all of your struggles and some major failures, perhaps, um, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to believe and trust him, you're going to be victorious in your Christian walk. Amen. So after having said those things, let, let me just remind you quickly about what we spoke last week. Last week, I preached uh, on this chapter, verses um, uh, 1 through verse numbers uh, uh, 11. And um, I read, although we read all of the scriptures, and here's what he said. We said, I basically laid a foundation for the message, right, uh, of um, uh, talking about how it is that God gives us two important things. He gives us a mind that is set on the things of God, and he gives us a heart with passions for God. And uh, let me share with you some of those truths just briefly that I shared last week. I said that um, morality is not consecration. Um, uh, anyone can be a moral person. Anyone can. If they make the right decisions and... They live and act responsibly. Anyone can live a moral life, but not anyone can live a holy life. The difference between a moral life, they look very, very similar in, 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 a, in practical terms. In other words, a person, a man that is faithful to his wife and is responsible with his family and is a good leader to his children is not going to look very different from a Christian man that is faithful to his wife and is responsible with his family and is loyal and, uh, and provides for his children. They look almost the same. The difference is that one of those um, uh, lives is dedicated everything that they do to the glory of God when they were saved. And the other individual that does the very same things is not living a holy life because whatever he does, he's not doing it for the glory of God. And he's not doing it as a result of a regenerate heart. And so although both actions and lives might look very similar the one to the other, we need to understand that, that um, uh, the life of faith is a life where everything that you do, you say, you think, the things that you're about are for the glory of God. And that's not true for people that live good lives, and I'm not going to say that they're not. They live moral lives. So um, a holy life is a life that has been consecrated to the glory of God. It's been dedicated to God. Uh, that we talked about last week. We said also that according to Romans chapter 7, the law is good. Everyone say the law is good. The law is good. 
And that was probably the, the biggest point we made last week in the message is that the law is good. There's a lot of Bible teachers, that, to my great disappointment, because I don't mind saying it, you know, some of my um, favorite Bible teachers have gone, swung to the, um, uh, to the, uh, to the left, um, and have uh, denied, are now denying the importance of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture or the importance of, of, um, of, of believing that the Bible is the Word of God and, that it, and, and what they have done is they have taken trying to, to uh, make the Scriptures acceptable to people. They have said, okay, we'll admit that the Bible has errors and mistakes, but the really important thing is not that the Bible is perfect. It's other things like the resurrection. And um, it's, a, it's super problematic to think that way as far as our faith is concerned, a subject that perhaps we'll talk about another time. But what we did say was this, and even those teachers now rejecting the Old Testament to a great degree say that the, that the commandments in the Old Testament really don't have anything to do with us today because today we're living by grace. And I think that uh, we are living by grace. There's no question about that. But the point is that the law, the Ten Commandments, are still good. Say amen. We don't discount the Ten Commandments. We believe the Ten Commandments. We don't say they're unimportant. We say they're crucial to a healthy Christian life. The Ten Commandments are. And so here's what the Bible says about the Ten Commandments. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12, it says... Wherefore, open your Bibles and look at your Bibles, because that's, that's really what makes the difference. Important. I'll, I'll tell you why it's important to look. Well, there's a lot of reasons. I'll tell you one. If, if we get used to not looking at the Bible, it, you'd have to trust that what's coming up on the screen is in the Bible. And in the right, in the wrong context... That may not be true, or maybe they put up a version of the Bible that isn't as accurate as it should be. So it's always, look, guys, you should be testers of the preachers. You shouldn't just be there listening. Well, pastor said it's got to be true. It's not true. Pastor is not always right. Ask my wife. She knows. And um, she just, <laughs> she's just smiling over there, not saying nothing, but... But she's told me plenty of times that's just not true. And, um, and uh, so, but here's what the Bible says about the Ten Commandments. Wherefore, verse 12, the law is good, holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Everyone say the, the law is good. The law is good. The commandments are good. We don't reject the Ten Commandments. We say they're good. Well, you would say, well, why, why are the Ten Commandments good? Well, the Ten Commandments are good for this one reason, according to Romans chapter 7, because they reveal to us our sinfulness. Right? And so last week we, we, we encouraged you to think about a world where you say, well, how's, it, how's that important? Listen, it's important for us to know we're sinners. Because the moment that we don't know that we're sinners, the world gets real bad. Now, last, last week, I told you guys, imagine a world 
where there is no sin, like Freud proposed, where there are no moral restrictions, where you get to have sex with whoever you want to have sex, and you get to treat people bad, whoever you don't like, you get to hate people that you want to hate, where you get to live with all kinds of anger and bitterness in your heart. Imagine a world where you get to slap the person and wound and hurt the person that you just want to hurt and wound. That's not a better world. All behavior, a world where all behavior, all moral behavior is done away with, where there are no moral connections or implications to the thing that we do is not a better world. It's not a healthier world for one problem, that every one of us are sinners. The only context in which a, a world with all of the Ten Commandments is good without the Ten Commandments is the pre-Adamic world. The, the, rather, let me say it this way. The world before the fall where there was only one commandment. Don't eat of the tree of the fruit of, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. That's just one There was even a commandment back in that day. So the law is good. Everyone say the law is good. Now, the problem is not the law I'm the problem. That's what Paul's going to tell us today. The problem is not the law. The problem is in my flesh. The problem is in my flesh. And so man is different from the animal kingdom. We are different from all other terrestrial beings in that we have a conscience. Everyone say conscience. And we have the law that God has given us that, that awakens our conscience, that restricts our behaviors, and that inflicts emotional pain whenever we violate the Word of God. Now, how many have ever felt that? You, you did something you weren't supposed to do, and your, your conscience inflicted emotional pain on you. Anybody here ever cry over their sins? I've cried, I've wept over my sins. And I've done it on, 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 on numerous occasions. I still weep over my sins. Well, why is the emotional pain that conscience and the word of God, why is that a good thing? Let me, let, me, let me make this statement and see if you guys agree. And if you don't agree, you can argue with me after service. We'll have a good conversation. Emotional pain that is caused by the violation of God's word is good because the pain caused by, or rather, the pain caused by the lack of conviction or remorse would be greater than that pain which the conscience causes because of its awareness of sin. In other words, let me say it this way. If we had no, 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 no moral restrictions, no rights or wrongs, no Ten Commandments, and we could do whatever we wanted, the pain that would result from that kind of behavior in a sinful world would be a million times greater than the pain that a guilty conscience inflicts upon the violator. Say amen. Right, and so... Freud's answer to the, 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 the mental problems of mankind or get rid of all of the commandments, it's God's fault. Gave us all these commandments, we feel all guilty. Because he gave us all these commandments, we feel all guilty, we get emotionally sick. Wrong. 
The reason that's wrong is because the pain that the conscience inflicts on us has a purpose. It's set there to restrain sin. It's set there there as a stop sign to say, don't go any further. Don't do that again. And the reason that that causes pain in us is a good thing because if it wasn't there and we went forward and were unfaithful to our wives and were involved in all kinds of vices and all kinds of sins, the pain that that would bring into our lives would be so much greater than the discomfort that we feel when the Holy Ghost says, stop! And when we still move forward and the, and the Holy Spirit says, guilty! And the Word of God says, wrong! And we feel guilty and condemned. That is a good pain. Amen. Come on, some of you know that some pain is good pain. That's right, and so, and so we, we, we think it's important for every one of us to know that, let me just start here, that the pain that you feel when you violate God's law, when you break God's commandment, is healthy pain. Nobody wants to feel pain, but, but hey, we don't live in a perfect world, and we're not perfect people. So every one of us, sooner or later, are going to feel pain. And all of this... What is causing our pain? Well, the Bible, the Word of God is causing some of that pain. That's Paul's concern in the first point that we made yesterday, that the law is good. Well, the commandment of God is causing some of that pain. Why? Because the commandment tells us you messed up, you didn't do right, you broke the commandment again, you shouldn't have done that, and we feel bad about it. Well, the commandment is causing that pain. Well, is the law bad? Is the commandment evil because it causes pain? No. What Paul now is going to say, point number two, is that the problem is not God's good law. The problem is the sin that is inside of me. Now look with me at verse number 12, please. And um, let's see what the scripture says there. It says, look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent that the law is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but... The sin that dwelleth in me, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Say verse 18 with me. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, what? There dwelleth no good thing. Say it again. Dwelleth no good thing. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Right? So let me just stop there for a second and say this. There's a lot of things in life, guys, that your flesh is just really going to enjoy, right? That's not good. That God says, don't do it. A lot of stuff. There's um, overeating. I mean, anybody sit down before some of mama's good cooking? I mean, if mama knows how to cook good, most of them do, right? But, and then you're just eating. You know, you've come to your limit. You're full, but man... That carne con chile is just so good. Just a little bit more. 
and bring me another glass of milk. And man, it just, all right, I, I, I'm confessing here is what I'm doing. Nothing, nothing, nothing less than that I'm confessing. And, um, but in my flesh, sometimes the flesh is going to delight itself. It's going to delight itself in smoking a joint. It's going to delight itself in doing drugs. It's going to delight itself in all kinds of stuff. The flesh can enjoy so many different things, and God is saying, no good. Don't do it. And so verse 7, verse 18 again, For I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which, I, uh, which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. Now, that whole portion of Scripture to me seems like a really negative Negative scripture, right? It's kind of like, man, I'm trying, but ah, and I, it, oh, I'm messing up, and I'm messing up, and I'm messing up, and I'm messing up. It seems like Paul is presenting here a life where, where, um, where there's, where there's, um, where there's this struggle, this almost this frustration that is being presented about the realities of the Christian life. It's not easy to be a Christian. We're in a struggle. We're in a fight. And if you listen to the, to, the, um, to the words of Paul, look at the phrases, just the phrases, and listen. You don't have to, they're in the scriptures, they're in Romans 7, but listen to the phrases that Paul uses that expresses his frustration. He says this, but I am carnal, sold under sin, verse 14, verse 15. I allow not that I do, verse 15. What I hate that I do, verse 16. I would not Verse 19, but the evil which I would not, that I do. That's, it's really like, man, this is not, this is not, not, not good. It's not positive. It's not like, woohoo, the Christian life is a great life. It's always victory. It's always being on the mountaintop. But you know what the reality about these scriptures is? That every one of you and I and every Christian that has ever lived has felt that same emotion. That's right. You have felt unworthy. You have felt like if you didn't deserve to be in the presence of God, you have felt like less than a son. And to, uh, to even make that worse, the devil has gotten up and he said, that's right, you're no good. And that's right, you ought to hate yourself. And that's right, you really are not a very good Christian. And I, I just don't see how you're going to make it. This Christian life is too hard. The devil will get up and applaud all of the lies that he wants us to believe and to swallow. Anybody ever hear those words from the devil? You're not going to make it. You're not good enough. You're not like brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And, and the devil plays those comparison games and all that kind of dumb stuff that the devil does. He's not dumb, but I like to call him dumb. Always coming up with this stuff. And there's this struggle that's the reality so if Paul describes it any other way, we don't get it. I don't get it. I get it when he says this kind of stuff. I'm sold under sin. I get it when he says, I don't want to do it, but I do it. I get it when he says, I would not. I get it when he says, the evil that is in me that I would not do, that's what I do. I, I understand that clearly. Because that's every one of our struggles. Whether it's with your character or with your uh, attitude or 
or whether with your works or with some sin in particular, every one of us can identify with that kind of a struggle. But I want you to notice something else about this. I think it's such a great thing about Paul. In these verses that we just got done reading, verses 14 to verse 20, you guys all go home and read them again, is this. Number one, that sin is a reality in even Paul's life. There's a struggle. Number two, I want you to notice in the scriptures that his will is not in it. And number three, I want you to notice that his emotions are inclined not to do it. So in the inner man, this struggle arises from the flesh and the spirit. It's a, it's a struggle that every one of us experience. These, these phrases that, that Paul, that I just got done mentioning, graphically communicate the struggle that every Christian has with sin. And so Paul first describes the struggle, and then in these verses, he, he explains the theology. And here's the major points of the theology. Again, number one, I am carnal. Everyone say it, I am carnal. And that doesn't just mean the flesh, it means the desires of the flesh. Say, I am carnal. I am carnal. And um, it's that part of me that is not yet regenerate. It is that part of me that still desires to mess around and to do stuff that I ought not to do and to be lazy and to overeat and to do all of the kinds of things that the flesh wants to do. It's just, I am carnal. Everyone say, I am carnal. I mean, don't glory in it, right? Oh, I'm carnal. Oh, glory to God. Don't glory in it, but it's a reality that every one of us live. Every argument you've ever had, you've had because you're both carnal. That's right. Say amen. amen. Everything bad that happens in our lives happens because of that. that's the first point. It's that part of you that is not yet regenerate. Number two, verses 17 to 18 says this, teaches this. That my will has been freed and is inclined towards righteousness. That's a part of the theology. While verses 14 and 15 explain that I am carnal, verses 17 to 18 explain that my will has been freed from the power of sin, but, listen to this, I am freed from the power of sin and, in, and am inclined towards righteousness. My will wants to do what's right. That's all in the scriptures that we got, just got done reading. Number three, here's what Paul says. Here's a the theology. I cannot find a way to live a sin-free life. Has anybody found it here? None of us. We cannot find a way to live a sin-free life. The main point is this. My will is free, and I am totally committed to serving Jesus Christ, but I cannot find a way of living a sinless life. Man, every one of these points in chapter 7 of Romans is ding, 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 right, right, right. That's me. That's my struggle. That's my reality. And I don't care how spiritual you seem. And I don't care how holy the man or the woman might seem to be. This is everyone's struggle. Listen, let me say it, let me say it this way particularly. 
This is the struggle in a greater level of the most righteous people there are in the world today. The most righteous men, the most righteous men, the holiest lives, the most committed, the most sacrificial lives that have ever lived, live this struggle to a greater degree every day of their lives. The holier you are, the greater the struggle. You know why? Because the holier you are, the more you hate sin. And the, and, and the more, you, and, and as you touch sin and you see sin in your life, the more you detest it. It is the Christian that walks far from the Lord. It is the Christian that is uncommitted. It is the Christian that is not following Christ closely that he's aware of the struggle because every Christian is. But it's not that big a deal. It just is what it is. And the closer you get to Christ, the more intense the struggle and the fight of faith in every one of us. So I want to ask this question. How big of a deal is the sin in your life? If it's a big deal, then you're doing something right. Now verses 19 and 20 teaches this. That the problem is the sin that is in me. It's not me. I'm saved. Everyone say, I'm saved. Come on, everyone say, I'm saved. I'm saved. If you're saved, washed by the blood of Jesus, you're saved. I'm, say, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm in a battle of my life. I'm struggling with sin. But hey, listen, it's not me. It's the sin that's inside of me. I'm, say, I'm saved. You see how Paul kind of separates these two things? There's a spiritual uh, position that he is in with Christ. He is a righteous man. He is a saved man. He is a holy man. The righteousness of Christ has, has, has embraced and covered him. But the other reality is now he kind of like almost steps aside and says, there is this sin, that sin that dwells in, in me, the man, the, the, the will, the, 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 the spirit, the emotion. This man, there is this sin that causes me to sin. And it almost seems like there's this, like, um, a schizophrenic almost sense, and it's not that, obviously not. That's just a bad way to put it, in, in the way that Paul deals with the sin. I so hate it. I cannot even see it as being a part of who I am. Hate it. And so he says, the sin that dwells in me, in fact, there's a scripture in the, in, the, um, in the the last verses. Look at verse number 24, and you'll see it really clearly there, where that almost that, 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 that schizophrenic kind of like there's he, the sin and then there's me. Look at verse 24. It says this. Read it with me, everyone, out loud. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You know what he's, the image there is? It's of a man that's been laid up in a prison and sometimes it would chain these men together and in those miserable conditions, one man would die while the other was still alive, barely. And so imagine, he's, he's tied to a dead man. The stench, the, the, the putref putrefaction of that body as it begins to fall apart and decay 
and he's still tied to it. That's the imagery. He's saying, that's the sin. This is me. Somehow in this life and in this world and in this experience, I am tied to it and I cannot break myself away from it. And so I live with its smell and I live with its decaying, decomposing flesh. It's not his friend. It is not his buddy. It is not an insignificant circumstance or situation in his life. It touches him. It bothers him. It, it causes him to be in unease. It, it troubles him. That's the sin. That's the sin. And this is me. And, and the imagery is so graphic and so powerful because this is the way that we Christians see sin. And the holier you get, the closer to Christ you get, the more that becomes a truth. So somebody looks at Romans chapter 7 and says, man, Paul must have been weak. No, Paul wasn't weak. Paul was holy. You say, Paul must be messing up all of the time. No, he's living such a righteous life that anytime sin manifests itself in him, he says, I hate it. I hate it. It's like a dead man tied to me, and I can't get away from it. That's how, that's how we as believers are to look at sin. Now, that's the negative side of it. Now, let's look at the positive side of it. Where's, where's Paul's heart in this? Where's his mind in this? Look at verse 15, and let's just hear phrases again. Here's the phrases that Paul gives us that I want to highlight, the positive phrases. In verse 15, he says this, for what I would. In verse 17, he says, now then it is no more I that do it. In verse 18, he says, to will is present with me. Verse 19, he says, for the good that I would do. Do you see? You see the heart of a born-again man, of a born-again woman? Do you see the desires and the will and the determination of this individual regarding himself? I would serve the Lord. I, if I sin, it is not I that do it. To will, to do right, to live righteously, that's where I am for the good that I would do. He is expressing very clearly his, his desire and his passion as a saved man. No Christian that is a true Christian that is living right before God looks at sin carelessly and casually. Now, do we sometimes do that? Yeah, sometimes we do. Are there areas in our lives where that's how we're treating sin? Yes. And in those areas, wherever we treat sin casually or like it's not a big deal, those are the areas where sin is strong in our lives. If you harbor things in your heart and you don't forgive and you don't forgive and you don't forgive. You may not be a person that struggles with lust or a person that struggles with stealing or a person that struggles with other things. But if you're harboring, 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 harboring anger and bitterness in your heart, then in that area, sin has become a stronghold. It has become an area where sin dominates your life and your character. 
and, um, and, and a place where sin manifests itself. And it's an area that we as believers, wherever that area is for you or for me, we must give our attention and our time to in prayer and in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Now let me move on to the third point or to the second and last point of the message today and that is this, Paul's victory. Look at verse 21 through verse 20, through, through chapter 8 verse 1. All right, let's go to uh, verse 21. Here's what it says. And read it with me if you would. Put it up guys. Romans 7, 21. Thanks. Here's what it says. Open your Bibles. I find then a law, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing into captivity the law of sin, which is in my members. Now go to verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That scripture has to be shoved up into chapter 7 because it fits like a glove. And the chapters are put there by men, but the reality is that that's a continuing text. And it's an important one. Because what I see here is this. I see that um, uh, you, it's true that sin is a strong law in my flesh. But it is equally true that there is another law inside of me. And that is the law of God. And that law is in the inner man. So the flesh and its desires wants to serve sin... But inside of me, my mind and my emotions, I want to serve God. Amen? Amen? Now notice the place that the mind plays in the struggle. At conversion, God has taken control of our minds, our thoughts, and of our heart, our emotions. When we get saved, you guys remember the moment you were saved? Man, your will was, I'm going to live for God. Absolutely no questions. And your emotion was, I love him. He's amazing. That was our, that was our, 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 our new born again experience. We love the Lord and we wanted to live for him. And the reason we did that was because the law of sin always brings death and the law of God always brings life and peace. And we delight in the law, in the law of God that brings life and peace. And we hate the law, of, de of, the, the law of, of sin that brings death. And so, but I do want you to notice how that, how that the mind plays such an important role. I'm about done. The mind is immensely important. In fact, let me say this. All of chapter 8, or at least most of chapter 8, is going to have to do with the law of the mind. Being victorious, walking in the spirit. What does that mean? It means walking and letting your mind and your heart have control over the, the things that you do when they are subject to the word of God. Such an important point. Now listen to this. I'm just going to end here in a few moments. You all know that doesn't mean much, but 
We're going to try to make it mean something this morning. Now, listen to this. After your conversion, sin wars to take control, to take back control of the mind. Say it again. Listen, everyone listen to me here. Once we're saved, here's what the devil does. And here's what the world, and he's going to use the world to do it, and he's going to use your flesh as an ally. So there's the devil, there's the ally of your flesh, and there is the world that is, that is aligned all against you. And here's what they're going to try to do. If they can do this one thing, they can get you on a track to defeat, or at least to live a weak Christian life. They're going to try to take control of your mind. Everyone say, my mind is sacred. If the devil can take control of the thinking of a Christian, he can take control of his life. Right, at conversion, God took control of our thoughts and he took control of our emotions and he saved us. Now, let me say this. I'm convinced that Christians who are losing their fight against sin, listen everyone, I am convinced that the Christians that are losing their fight against sin are doing so because they have been careless with their minds. You hear that? So I, I'm, I'm certain that here in this church today, every Christian that is really struggling, man, you're going through it. You're really having a hard time living the Christian life. The reason you're doing it is because you've exposed your mind to a lot of things that are not Christian. The truth. So let, let me read to you guys a quote. I wanted to read this quote, and I'll, I'll do it now. It's from a book that's called Losing Our Religion by um, Sarah Elizabeth Cup. And Sarah Elizabeth Cup is not a believer. She's an atheist. But she wrote a book that's called Losing Our Religion, The Liberal Media's Attack on Christianity. And here's how she starts her book. I'll read the first couple of paragraphs. Just be patient with me. She says this. Not a believer. Fidel Castro once said, quote, I begin a revolution with 82 men. If I had to do it again... I do it with 10 or 15 of absolute faith. It doesn't matter how small you are, if you have faith and a plan of action. Close quote. Again, Miss Cup. And now, with careful covert nudges from the Obama administration, she wrote the book in 2010, the revolution that began decades ago has gained unprecedented momentum. In a matter of just a few years, the revolution could be over, successfully won, and most of you will be left scratching your heads, wondering what just happened to everything you thought you knew and held sacred. Very soon, it's going to be too late. This revolution isn't led by the proletariat or by the struggling and exploited masses held under the oppressive grip of a power-hungry dictator. It is not led by the students or the workers of the Burgoyes, yet this revolution is without doubt a class war. This revolution does not, revolution does not require an army, 
It does not need guns or ammunition, bombs or missiles, surveillance or, or spy networks. It does not require that its revolutionaries dress in uniform or huddle in foxholes. Frankly, it doesn't even require them to leave their desks. If this sounds ominous, it is. And it's much worse than you think. The revolution, already in full throttle around the country, is being waged against you and me and every other American. Its goal is simple, to overthrow God and to silence Christian America for good. Close quote. Regarding the mass media, she says this, quote, the people you trust to be fair, accurate, objective, insightful, the so-called watchdogs of the state, protectors of truth, gatekeepers, and guardians of freedom, they are the very revolutionaries out to shame, mock, subvert, pervert, corrupt, debate, and extinguish your beliefs, the beliefs of the vast majority of Americans, and the values upon which this country was founded. They are doing the one thing they were never supposed to do. They are taking sides. You know what's happened? You know what happens? It, it happens every time. This is, there, there's no exceptions to this. That whenever Christians are thoughtless about the things they expose themselves to, there is an indoctrination that is taking place. It's taking place in social media, in Facebook. It's taking place on Twitter. It's take Twitter. It's taking place on all of those other social media. You guys remember the big old issue that's come up with Elon Musk and, and Twitter and all that kind of stuff that was going on and how it was so biased supposedly or it is now or whatever is going on there. They feed us what they want to feed us in order to bring their agenda across to us. And that was back during the Obama administration. And now here we are years later after, tr after Trump and after Biden uh, administrations. And, and where's the United States of America today? Better? Is it now hidden behind the curtains and, and, and talked about only as, as uh, educators and, and legislators huddle in their mahogany desks to plan about what they envision for the future of America, or has it blatantly just become the agenda of today? Paul said in Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death. It's always true. And if you're struggling your Christian life right now, I'm going to tell you part of the problem. It's not all of the problem. It's because you're watching the wrong things. Whether on television or on the internet, you're spending too much time on Facebook and on Instagram and on space time or whatever those other ones are called. On all of those, you're, spent, you're wasting your life away. Amen. You're watching too many romance novels and, and you're watching too many violent movies and you're, you're spending your time and filling your mind with the ideas that are not Christian, that God and the, and the, the God of this world would love for us to embrace. 
If you're living a Christian life and you're struggling in your Christian life, it's probably because you've exposed your mind to a lot of things you should not be exposing them to. So I'll say this as I end. And if the musicians can come on now, that'll help. That the answer to the problem that we're confronting today, listen to this now, everyone. If you get nothing else and you forget, you'll forget most of everything I said today. But if you forget most everything I said, don't forget this. That the answer to a victorious Christian life is a consecrated mind. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot of people that think, as long as I don't do it, they can see it, they can enjoy it on television, on social media, on the internet, but as long as I don't do it, it's all right. And the problem is you've consecrated your body to not fornicate. You've consecrated your body not to be violent, but you've been careless with your mind. And so you struggle with sexual sin and you struggle with your character and with violence and with anger and with bitterness. You're hurt. You know why? Because you've not consecrated your mind. You know what consecration means? It means you take something that's used for regular stuff and you say, this will only be used for God. This is holy. And God is saying, you're mine not to be holy. So I would ask you as you stand today, what things are bringing weakness and death to your spiritual life? What things today do you just need to tell Lord, okay, Lord, look, I, I hear the word and I need to I need to get this right. Romans 8, 6 again, and we'll, we'll talk about this sometime in the future in greater detail. Romans 8, 6. Listen, everyone listen. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's a good translation, but I like the English Standard Version better. He says this, listen. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You set something. Set a cornerstone. You lay it in the ground. You, you, you make it in such a way that it's not going to be movable. This is, this is, this is what I will allow to influence my thinking. New International Version. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life. When you set your mind to make wise decisions about what you're exposed to voluntarily, that that is only going to be righteousness and holiness, you will set yourself up for defeating the sin that's been troubling you. Just stop watching the junk. 
Stop exposing yourself to the people that are negative and gossipers. And, and I know they're your friends, but, but that's all they talk about. And nasty stuff and not good stuff and, and, and evil stuff. Stop. You say, but they're my family. Hey, listen. Sometimes you got to draw a line somewhere. Just draw the line. Stop exposing yourself. Now, I'll tell you what I'm not telling you to do in the last statement that I just made because it's, uh, I don't want you to be like the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or others that as soon as you become a Jehovah's Witness, you can't hang out with your family. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that every time you get with them, they got someone to talk about. They got something negative to say about someone. There's nothing good coming out of them. And you have a choice. Family, friends, some of them, you don't have much of a choice. But you got to be really careful about who is affecting the way you think. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Here's what I want you to think about as you leave this morning. Oh, there's a lot of things, right? said a lot. Listen to the video. You need to see yourself as empowered and victorious. That's how Paul sees himself. Paul does not walk away from, from Romans 7 with his head down saying, man, this, this is terrible being a Christian. He walks away with his head up. He walks away thinking, okay, I am serving the Lord with my mind. And I am serving the Lord with my will. And whenever sin creeps up, okay, it crept up. I'm going to hate it. But I'm going to serve God the very best that I can. And I'm never giving up. Never giving up. Praise the Lord. Very good. So I don't know if you're, why well, I don't know, I do know. I know that we all struggle with this. If you're not a Christian, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, accepted him, or rather asked him to come and take control of your life, then I would encourage you to do that this morning. Jesus loves you. He died on Calvary's cross to wash you of all of your sins. If sin has got control of your life, I would encourage you this morning to confess that to God and to make it right in the presence of the Lord. Make yourself a person that is committed, consecrated to the things that God has called us to do. In the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the word this morning and we thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that moves in this place. And I pray that this message would serve to strengthen us and to encourage us and to ground us in the faith. Oh God, in the name of Jesus Christ, let us be a people, Lord, that serves you with our bodies, with our soul, and with our mind, and with our will, with everything about us, Lord, we consecrate to you. And bless our friends that are here this morning. Someone that just needs God, that's what they need. They need God. They've got religion, but they need God. They've got a, 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 a church that they belong to or that they associate with, but they need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And today, as we have heard the word of God, cause us to turn from our sins and to turn to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone says amen.